Welcome once again to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode one for September 2023. Hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, we'll have a selection, as usual, of your letters to the editor. Chris Loder MP reflects on the changing shape of high street banking and the vital role which he sees cash still has within modern society. And Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party says, I don't love the solar farms either. Mike Chapman of the Blackmore Vale Lib Dems recounts his experience chatting with visitors to the Gillingham and Shaftesbury show and the Verwood Rustic Fair, with quite a bit of disillusionment in evidence. And composer Helen Ottaway gives her choice of Dorset Island discs. And we'll have Fanny Charles's obituary to regular BV magazine contributor Roger Guttridge, who sadly left us last month. But first, here's Laura. Early last month, I stumbled across a peach of a story. It had intrigue, moderately salacious details, well-known names, lots of gossip, it was loads of fun, and I knew immediately who else would love it too. So I called Roger Guttridge, who, as predicted, chuckled with glee and promptly said he was on it. And he spent the next few days researching the facts, interviewing the descendants and those who might have had a hand in the truth of the tale. He tracked down old magazines and photographs. He checked in with regular updates, knowing I was equally agog to see what he discovered. He admitted he was having more fun than he'd had in a long time, that the old journo skills had been thoroughly dusted off and he was loving every second. Finally, he submitted the story. Two days early and written perfectly, as Roger's copy always was. And the next day I called him to tell him I couldn't use it. Upon reflection, the gossip was just a little too gossipy. I expected him to throw a little bit of a mood, to be honest, after all the hard work, but instead he just laughed. And he said, thought you might say that, but now you've got a gap. I said it was fine, I'd manage, and he hung up saying, it's all right, leave it with me. 10am the following day, I had the tale of Henry Hastings' champion seducer in my inbox. Even more ridiculous than the first tale, a far more villainous villain, and in the end, actually a better story. When I called to thank him, I apologised again to Roger for pulling the first one and he brushed me off. Oh, it's fine. The chase was worth it. While we chatted, he proudly told me he was feeling incredibly well. Better than he had for a long time. We planned the next couple of months' columns together and he told me he was definitely cashing in on my long overdue debt of a promised slice of cake. I promised him the best cake and hot chocolate we could find in a few weeks' time and we'd invite his friend and co-columnist Barry Cuff too to make an outing of it. Less than two weeks after we spoke, having held his leukaemia at bay for four years, Roger passed away. Since the launch of the BV, Roger Guttridge has been a part of every issue. I know many will miss his writing, almost as much as I'll miss his advice, his laugh, his opinion, and his endlessly long winding, did I tell you about that time, phone calls. Letters to the Editor Peter Neal, president of the Sherborne and District Society CPRE, writes as follows. It was with sadness that I heard that Michael Cannon had passed away, and my sympathy is extended to Sally and his family. I first made the acquaintance of Michael in early 2018 when I approached him about purchasing Sherborne House. At the time, he decided not to, but toward the end of that year, he did indeed purchase the house through a trust he set up. I was then fortunate, soon afterwards, to meet him and Sally at the house, to be shown around the very run-down building and to hear about his plans for its future. We then remained in intermittent contact via email and conversations when we met, often at the garden centre. I witnessed the change in ideas for the building and was able to support them, as a minor player, with the relevant authorities. 
It was a real joy this summer to have another visit and to see the impressive progress that's been made. Clearly no expense has been spared and the work ensures the conservation of what is probably the most important secular building in Sherbourne after the two castles. It is, therefore, a real tragedy that Michael has not seen the completion of the project, but one hopes he felt secure in the knowledge of what will become. He has left a wonderful legacy for the town and indeed the county. The opening of the Sherbourne should be a fitting memorial to him, and of course to his mother who was, I understood, the inspiration behind what he wished to achieve. Save the ticket offices, says Paul Glennon of Shaftesbury. I'm writing to highlight the proposed closure of rail ticket offices across England that will have a devastating impact on blind and partially sighted people's ability to travel independently, stopping people getting to work, health appointments and seeing friends. Ticket offices are not just about selling tickets. They provide a reliable first point of contact for many kinds of staff assistance, such as arranging sighted guidance through the station and safely onto the train, to advising on any changes to journeys. Modernisation of our railways doesn't just mean apps and touchscreens. Modernisation means inclusivity and not leaving anyone behind. These proposals must be scrapped. The recent approval of the Hazelbury Bryan Solar Farm is a positive step. It may be unsightly for a few in the very short term when you take the expected 30 years in context. Renewable energy is crucial for combating climate change and this project offers the chance of innovative ways to integrate solar panels with agriculture. Recent studies show that such setups can even benefit livestock and crops. Before dismissing new energy solutions, let's consider their potential to enhance both our energy security and our countryside. Education and open-mindedness could lead us to invest in promising, sustainable ventures. However, I'd like to see Dorset Council placing strictures and covenants on the planning to ensure the land is used as much as possible and isn't simply left with a cash cow, the only livestock required for the investors. That's from Alan Beerns of Sturminster Newton. Anna Kors of Wimborne Minster also writes about the solar farm. I'm delighted, she says, that the council is finally taking our green energy needs seriously. However... Their approach, as usual, appears to be an all-or-nothing solution. When it comes to housing, for example, they seem content to simply add hundreds of homes to the outskirts of small rural communities in instant, characterless estates without adequately considering the existing infrastructure and turning a blind eye to the struggling community. The same all-or-nothing mindset seems to apply to the recent solar farm planning application – While solar energy is a resource that should be wholeheartedly embraced, allocating 190 acres of valuable farmland for a solar farm seems irresponsible, particularly when this so-called environmentally conscious council has no mandatory requirement for new builds. The developers of the new homes springing up across Dorset have absolutely no need to include the use of solar panels. We need a more balanced approach, that both respects the environment and considers the long-term sustainability of our communities. Politics. Cash versus contactless. The uncertain future of banking in Dorset. The declining use of cash particularly affects the elderly and rural dwellers, says Chris Loder, MP, but new regulations aim to protect access to cash. Over the last few decades, we have seen a fundamental shift in the patterns of personal banking. 
Cash has dominated our financial behaviour for centuries, but it's been overtaken in less than 40 years by the popularity of credit and debit cards, and recently contactless payments. It puts users of cash in the Blackmore Vale and wider West Dorset in an untenable situation, and raises important questions about the future role of cash in the local and national economy. The Covid pandemic accelerated these trends. In 2021, only 15% of payments were made with cash. The decreased reliance on physical cash is one of the main reasons bank branches and building societies have restructured their business models and withdrawn from our high streets. Here in the southwest, we have felt this hardest. In the last decade, our region has experienced the largest fall in the number of bank and building societies by comparison with the rest of the UK. Sherburn is no exception. The town now only has a Lloyds Bank, which operates with reduced hours and doesn't open on a Saturday. The post office on Cheap Street deals with cash, but only provides limited banking services. NatWest, Barclays and TSB have all come and gone, leaving users of cash and abandoned buildings in their wake. Yet, for a market town, cash is integral in transactions between Sherborne's traders and customers. It's a reliable, secure and simple form of payment, particularly so for those who are aged over 65, who live in rural areas, use cash for smaller purchases or budgeting, and those who are not used to using or do not have access to digital technology and the internet. There is, therefore, still an evident need for banks and building societies to remain on our high streets. Many constituents have told me how important it is for them to be served in person when dealing with something as sensitive as their personal finances. Automated teller machines, ATMs, can bridge the gap between digital and physical banking and fill the void left behind by bank closures. In Sherborne, there are five ATMs located across the town. But for rural dwellers outside the town, it means a journey perhaps up to 7 kilometres or more just to access cash. Under a new framework recently announced by the Treasury, the vast majority of people and businesses should be no further than 3 miles, that's 4.8 kilometres, away from withdrawing cash. This is a step in the right direction and will ensure that the most vulnerable cash users are protected. The Financial Conduct Authority has also been given new powers to ensure that banks and building societies protect access to cash. Nonetheless, a blanket approach to the digitisation of personal banking risks excluding the most vulnerable and will disproportionately affect residents in rural areas. Many of my constituents from Sherborne to Bridport and Dorchester have no wish to manage their finances digitally, but have effectively been forced to succumb by the changes to the banking and finance sector. I'd be interested to know what your views are on this issue, what your preference is, and in what direction you think personal banking is going. You can submit your views to my dedicated survey at chrisloader.co.uk forward slash banking, or you can write to me at chrisloadermp, House of Commons, London, SW1A0AA. I don't love the solar farms either, says Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party. The recent decision by Dorset Council to approve the development of a solar farm close to where I live in the Blackmore Vale prompted an exchange of views on social media after someone posted an article from the Daily Mail which was headlined, Fury as huge solar farm given the go-ahead in hardy country. Not so long ago, all the comments would have been strongly against the development, but this time 
there were a number of comments in favour. A reflection, perhaps, of an increasing awareness of the urgency of the situation? It's certainly getting harder to deny that the climate is changing, as evidenced by extreme weather-related events this year, including here in the UK and in Europe. Weather has always fluctuated, of course, but the increasing trend to severe events is obvious. Some commentators were also clearly aware of the way the government has failed us so badly in the urgent need to transition away from fossil fuels. The failure to develop the necessary infrastructure in renewable energy was also considered to be reflected in the ever-growing problems with health, education, sewerage and water and so on. To those who call for development to be placed anywhere but in our own backyard, I would point out that we are all in the same boat. We all have to play our part if we are to avoid sinking together. I doubt anyone thinks solar farms are visually attractive, or wind turbines for that matter. I certainly don't. I would much rather we didn't have to have them. But the fact of the matter is that humanity has boxed itself into a corner. Or rather, we've been boxed into a corner by corporations greedily pursuing profit before people and planet and by governments failing to regulate those corporations to prevent the damage they cause. We now have to throw everything we can at the problem of global warming in order to have any chance of stopping it getting out of hand. Cooperation needs to extend internationally, of course. Thankfully, there are signs that's happening as catastrophe knocks on everyone's doors. Dissatisfaction is a common thread, and this is from Mike Chapman of the Blackmore Vale Lib Dems. August has served up a strong reminder of the size and diversity of the North Dorset constituency, even after the Boundary Commission has wrought its most recent changes, and their latest proposals are on their website now. I say this because August has seen the Liberal Democrat team mount a presence at both the Gillingham and Shaftesbury show and the Verwood Rustic Fair. The two events are a long way apart in geographical terms, and they also feel quite different. One is deeply rural and agricultural, while the other has an air of the new forest edge of metropolis. What is interesting is that with exactly the same stand and precisely the same approach, asking some pertinent questions and listening hard, we had a very similar response. There is that age-old issue that when you have lost your car keys at night, you only look for them under the lamppost where there is light. We did not do that. We talked to people long and hard right across the spectrum of age, gender and the rest of the demographic niceties. We stood our ground against the diehards, meeting them with a rueful grin or two, but mostly we had good, amicable and engaged discussions. Over two days at the G&S and through the day in Verwood, we had something approaching 200 conversations, about one every five minutes. There were some big-ticket issues from these conversations. Why doesn't anything work properly? The self-seeking nature of politics? How out of touch our politicians are? Why can't we find a decent solution to the asylum seeker crisis? How could we have let Brexit end up like this? Why can't we come together as a nation to stop us going downhill? Why do governments do things mostly for the minority that put them there? There must be a better way of doing all this. You get the picture. Quite a lot of despair and even more disdain for the political classes. Lessons for all. I'm delighted, therefore, to watch Sarah Dyke, our new local MP for Somerton and Froome, embark on a constituency-wide tour as the first thing she does. 
to see, hear and seek to understand all about her constituency. My goodness me, she is a force. Still, on the lighter side, we asked attendees at both shows whether the current lot deserve another five years. The best answer we got was from the Daleks. I leave you to imagine the one-word answer. This month's guest on Dorset Island Discs is composer Helen Ottaway. Helen is also a sound installation artist, and she's contributed to two audio installations at this month's Activate Performing Arts Inside Out Festival, which is being held in Weymouth, Wimborne, Beer Regis and Poole. Helen teaches piano and, among her other musical interests, loves folk music and has been described as a folk minimalist. Now, Helen, to your choice of music and your reasons for them. So the very first one, we'll start with, we begin at the beginning, Love's Old Sweet Song, sung by Kathy Durkin from her album Memories. Love's Old Sweet Song is a song that my mother used to sing to me and my sister at bath time and bedtime. And I've got really clear memories of a little, as a little girl sitting on her lap wrapped in a towel hearing her sing this song. Um, both of my parents were very musical. My father sang in the Oxford Bark Choir. My mother had been a really, really good pianist at school and often played in assembly. She never took it much further, but she was always playing. And we had inherited a lovely Blutner grand piano from one of my father's aunts. So I grew up surrounded by music and my father was a vicar so he was also, you know, they were both into performing. He performed in church, it's, it's quite a performance really, doing all the service stuff. And my parents met on stage, they were both in the Amateur Dramatic Society and they played opposite each other and that was the beginning of their relationship. So there was always music and and my mother was always singing and always humming. What a, so, what a, what a lovely memory then. So, so your, your first choice takes you right back to childhood. And yes. your, your second choice, a little, bit, uh, a little bit further on in life maybe, um, Monteverdi's Vespers, the Vespers number no. 7 concerto, duo seraphim, um, sung by the, performed by the King's Consort uh, under Robert King. I think I, I took a little while to really love classical music. <laughs> Although it was it was in my blood and I played a lot, I didn't I don't remember many concerts until this one. I went with my school class to Coventry Cathedral. We had a very inspirational music teacher who was who brought music to life in a brilliant way. And um, he took us to Coventry Cathedral for a performance of Monteverdi Vespers. It was around the time when John Eliot Gardner had started the Monteverdi Singers. And it may have been them. I don't really remember. I couldn't find the programme when I looked for it. But it was just beautiful. And, and the one, the piece that I really love is where the, the baritone and the countertenor kind of dance with each other, their voices dance with each other, it's very melismatic. And it just stayed with me, this beautiful environment, this beautiful music. And then I found this version of it, and the baritone is James Gilchrist. And later on in my, in my musical career, 
I was lucky enough to have Ga James Gilchrist perform my music. I wrote a choral piece for Salisbury Festival called The Echoing Green. I was the composer in residence for In Praise of Trees, which was a big arts, arts project mainly. And the opening concert of Salisbury Festival in the cathedral, this was in 2003, was featured my new piece, The Echoing Green, and James Gilchrist was the soloist. Your, your third choice is, is a bit of a far cry from that. This is Hugh Masekela um, from South Africa and his greatest hits album, singing Bring Him Back Home. What's the, what's the reason for choosing this one, Helen? I went to college in London and it was very, it was a very politically kind of tortured time, really. There was Margaret Thatcher coming to power. The National Front were marching through South London. There was the New Cross fire, the Brixton riots. And um, through all of this, people were trying to get Nelson Mandela freed from prison. And Hugh Masekela had had a correspondence with Nelson Mandela when, when Mandela was in prison. And he wrote this song about freeing Nelson Mandela. And London in the late 70s, early 80s, throughout the 80s, was really interesting place to be. I saw lots of first performances of major works and lots of touring bands. And I managed to see Hugh Masekela play on a couple of occasions. And he and his band were really exciting. It was a really exciting sound. And it had this backstory as well, that it was, it was revolutionary, you know, it was political protest. Your uh, choice number four, Helen, uh, you, you, uh, is John Cage, an excerpt from his Inlets. And, and you, you, you say that John Cage and his work was the biggest single influence on your composing career. Yes, John Cage was an amazing person. He was, he was not only a sort of great philosophical thinker and a conceptual artist and a musician, but he was also just a lovely man. And I was really fortunate to, to encounter him twice. Once when I'd just left college, he and Merce Cunningham, his collaborating partner, who was a choreographer, they came to Goldsmiths, where I'd just finished. And we had a week, the musicians had a week with John Cage and the dancers from the Laban Centre and Goldsmith's students had a week with Cunningham. They performed for us and we performed for them. And his ideas are just very liberating. It's, it gives you permission, the way he thinks, gives you permission to allow chance to take a part in your work. And that has been something that I've incorporated really ever since and this is really critical to the way John Cage used to work and this piece I've chosen inlets it's also a really beautiful thing to watch he plays a conch shell and he fills it with water and in front of a microphone he manipulates the conch shell moves it around and it gurgles and it makes very lovely musical gurgly sounds 
but the performer can't control it. It's, it's really chance what happens. It's totally unexpected what happens. It, so, it sounds wonderful. I mean, I do, another take on put a, put a shell to your ear and you can hear the sea. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> He's taken that idea and, and uh, taken it a bit further. Um, your choice number five is uh, The Third Dream by Jeremy Payton Jones from his album Regular Music. Why this one? Um, well, Regular Music was a band that was formed by me and Jeremy and Andrew Poppy in 1980. We'd just finished Goldsmiths, the three of us. We'd been on the music course together and they were both composing. I was mostly playing other people's music at that time and often one of their music. So regular music was an example of the kind of band that was around at that time. Michael Nimer's band was made up of a set group of players who he was specifically writing for. So he was writing to their strengths. And the same with Gavin Bryer's ensemble you know, sort of English minimalists, they would always write for people they knew. And that model is really great because you know who you're writing for, you know who's going to play what parts, you know what they do well, and it also makes for a very tight ensemble, which is really good. So we, regular music, toured and played in London over 10 years or so and Jeremy also became quite involved in experimental theatre and he was regularly being asked to write for theatre shows by experimental theatre companies and the third dream the piece that that I've chosen for my fifth piece was one of the pieces from a theatre piece called Lulu Unchained, which was an ICA, Institute of Contemporary Arts, commission, um, written by the American writer Kathy Acker and directed by Pete Brooks. And it was on at the ICA for three or four weeks, something totally unheard of now. And we had the stage band. We were on stage and we played every night this this work, Lulu Unchained, just like the house band of the theatre. So I was the pianist for that production. And it was great. And all of this was based on the musicians who had begun as regular music. The other thing that happened was, as a result of working in theatre at the ICA, I met my partner, Steve, who was at the time the finance controller at the Institute of Contemporary Arts. So that was where we met, which is also a nice thing. The ICA was really, really important to all of us. So a, a, a very important um, disc for you, that one. Yes. Uh, and, and number six then, um, rather a contrast to that, I think. <laughs> um, two English idols, uh, number one by George Butterworth. And um, here the orchestra is the Halle, conducted by Sir Mark Elder. And it's from a, a, you, this comes from a disc called English Rhapsody, Butterworth, Delius and Granger. So what is the connection? What, what's the importance of this one for you? Well, you mentioned at the beginning that I'm sometimes described as a folk minimalist. And I've talked about the, the minimalism 
you know, the influence of people like um, Michael Nyman and Gavin Bryars, and also in America, the American minimalists like Philip Glass and Steve Reich. But folk music is also really somehow in my blood. And I think there is such a thing as an English composer. I think we're all, we've all got a bit of that English pastoral in us. And Vaughan Williams used a particular mode. I think it was Mixolodian. And as a result, he, his music is pretty unmistakable. And this was really, really hard. It was really hard to choose an English composer influenced by folk music because it could have been Vaughan Williams, it could have been Cecil Sharp, it could have been Percy Granger, whose music I absolutely love. But I chose Butterworth because we didn't get enough of Butterworth. He went off to the First World War and was killed. So that was the end of Butterworth's music. It was debatable whether he was going to carry on writing when he came back from the war. But before he went, he was one of the composers who collected folk songs. So he collected folk songs in Sussex mainly. And I have a long connection with Sussex. My parents retired to Sussex. We always went to Sussex in the summer because they had being a vicar, my father didn't own his vicarage, so they had a house in, in Seaford in Sussex. So we would go there once or twice a year. So I found that these folk songs that Butterworth collected really spoke to me. The first of the English idols has three folk songs in it. They're dabbling in the dew, just as the tide was flowing, and Henry Martin. And the, the second two, Butterworth collected himself. So it was very much, you know, from the grassroots. And you can hear the pieces, they're, they're very evident in the piece of music, the folk songs. And it's just a beautiful thing that our folk tradition comes bubbling up through the work of composers since. And it's, it's been preserved in that way. I don't collect folk songs. I don't know if there's anybody still still singing the old folk songs actually in the vernacular but people sometimes say that the tunes I write are like folk songs you know they they think oh where have I heard that folk song and hopefully hopefully they are my folk songs and they're not I haven't copied them from somewhere and so that's yeah that's that's kind of the folk part of my folk minimalism and, and in a way, it sounds as if your choice for number seven, um, Blow the Wind Southerly, Pierre Yezu by Jocelyn Pook, um, Blow the Wind Southerly, of course, famously sung by Kathleen Ferrier. Yes, Kathleen Ferrier was my favourite singer. So it comes back to my mother. In 2017, when she died, I started to think about writing a requiem and... This piece, Blow the Wind, Pia Yezu, it uses words from the, rec from the Requiem. Joss took a sample of Blow the Wind from Kathleen Ferrier and mixed it with the voice of Melanie Pappenheim, who we both, Jocelyn Pook and I, have worked with over many years with regular music and afterwards. 
And so you've got this blend of the of the original Kathleen Ferrier song and Jocelyn's new material sung by Melanie. Rather a contrast, Helen, to your final choice, number eight, uh, which comes from the film The Commitments, um, and that's Take Me to the River. Yes, well, I don't know if it's come through or not in this interview so far, but I'm obsessed with water, and everything I write has got some... Almost everything I write has got something to do with water. The very first piano and viola piece I wrote was called Mmm, I Hear Water... And it keeps coming back, and this requiem, the walking requiem, is called Sea Flood. And it's the theme is flooding. It's a requiem not just for our personal losses, like mine of my mother, but also the environmental loss that we're currently suffering with, with climate change and um, species loss and loss of environment and the fact that the seas are rising. So that's why it's called Sea Flood. And, and it's kind of, it continues a thread in my work of being, of everything being watery. So when I started doing a radio show for our local radio station, Froom FM, I decided to play only music that was related to water in some way. So it could have been the title it could have been the kind of material. It could even be the picture on the album cover. And for my theme tune, I chose Al Green's Take Me to the River. And I started by using just his version, and then I found lots of other people had covered it. There's a cover by Annie Lennox. There's a wonderful cover by um, Talking Heads. And it appears in this film, The Commitments, a really lovely, exuberant version of Take Me to the River. So that was one of the reasons that I chose this song. But the reason I knew that song in the first place was when I was living in London, before I really put all my energy into writing music, I worked as a picture researcher for Grove Dictionary of Music, published by Macmillan. And a lot of the other people working there were musicians as well as editors or copywriters or researchers. And one of my colleagues there introduced me to this song, Take Me to the River. And one day we had a Grove Dictionary party on a boat on the river, one of those party boats. And Anthony, the friend, said, why don't we be the band and we can play Take Me to the River? So I was the bass part on my keyboard and he played all the other parts on his keyboard and there was a lovely singer who worked in the post room at Macmillan who sang the song. And so that was, that was my introduction to the song and I abs- I've always loved it. And if, if I had more choices, you'd have a lot, you'd have more pop. I didn't think, it was really hard to choose. I couldn't choose more than one pop song. Uh, and then, and then, Helen, were you faced with a similar uh, dilemma and difficulty in choosing your book? No, no, not at all. No, I have one book that I always say is my favourite book, and it's Back to Water again. It's a book called Waterlog, 
and it's by Roger Deakin, sadly no longer with us. And it's about what people now call wild swimming, but in the old days we just called swimming. He did a tour of the whole of the UK and he found wonderful places to swim, high up tarns in Yorkshire, lovely waterfalls in Wales, his own moat, because he used to live in a moated house in, in Suffolk, and he swam in the, in the moat. And he was a journalist. He came to see a piece, an installation piece, that two of the people I've mentioned, Jocelyn Pook and Melanie Pappenheim and I, with a group called Three or Four Composers, we did this piece that was all about sunken bells, particularly the sunken bells off the coast of Suffolk at Dunwich. There are apparently 55 churches underwater in the North Sea. And in certain circumstances, you can hear the bells ringing, apparently. And this inspired a trilogy of works that we created. And Roger Deakin was really interested in this and he wrote about our work. And if he had lived longer, we hoped that we would make a film at Dunwich with him about the sunken bells. And, so and... this is what I have of him, is I have this wonderful book, Waterlog, signed by him. And um, on my desert island, I guess, I would be looking for places to swim other than the sea. Obviously, I'd swim in the sea. Yeah, so you really, Helen, you really are a water baby, aren't you? And I am finally, a water baby. Your, your chosen luxury might not weather terribly well on this desert island. <laughs> no, I would, I don't, I'm sure you'll probably say I'm not allowed this, but I would like a grand piano. I would like it to be a Blutner, if possible. But a Blutner with a treated soundboard so that um, the soundboard wouldn't crack in the heat. I have actually just come back from a festival in Spain where my latest piano piece was premiered. Um, the festival is called the Pisajes Piano Festival, run by Simone Tavoni, an Italian young pianist. It is all outside. So the piano is outside under the oak trees and all the performances take place outside. And two years ago when they had the first festival, the piano warped, but the piano has recovered and it's the same piano that's there this year. So I have faith that a piano can survive on a desert island. Well, I hope you are right. Helen, Helen Otway, Thank you very much indeed for giving us your choice of Dorset Island Discs. Thank you, Jenny. Looking back, an obituary of Roger Guttridge, 5th of May 1950 to the 8th of August 2023, by Fanny Charles. Readers of the BV will be saddened to hear of the death of Roger Guttridge, the Dorset writer and local historian whose articles have been one of the great delights of the magazine since we started it during the pandemic. We send our deep and sincere condolences to his wife, Sylvie, his son, Andy, and his family. The greatest tribute we can pay to our friend and hugely respected colleague is to dedicate this month's Looking Back to his life and work, with tributes from some of those who knew and worked with him. A journalist, a news hound, a swimmer and swimming correspondent, a local historian with a special interest in smuggling, 
a lover of the Beatles, Queen, and a great supporter of his son when Andy started his own band as a student. Roger Guttridge was a man who lived life to the utmost, right up to the end, still contributing his columns to the BV. After a four-year battle, he died of leukaemia on the 8th of August. As a district and chief reporter for the Bournemouth Evening Echo, Roger was a true newshound. Andy recalls family days out when Roger would spot a blue flashing light, ambulance, fire engine or police vehicle, and rapidly turn the car around to follow it, to be the first on the scene, first with the story. But he was no sensational headline seeker. He believed in the importance of the local newspaper in the community, and he was involved and concerned about many aspects of life in Bournemouth and Wimborne, where he worked for the Evening Echo, and throughout Dorset, which he mined for stories for some of his many books. His interests extended even across the Atlantic to Newfoundland, where he explored the centuries-old connection between the remote Canadian fishing community and the many families in Dorset and Poole, whose fathers, sons and brothers went west to find work fishing the Grand Banks. John Newth, long-time editor of the sadly now-defunct Dorset Life magazine, recalls his relationship with Roger over many years and hundreds of articles. Speaking at Roger's funeral, he praised the reliability, consistency, quality and total professionalism of Roger's work. If John had even the wildest idea, Roger would track it down, and he never missed a deadline. John remembers their years together as filled with many laughs. When Laura and Courtney started the BV, Roger Guttridge was one of the local journalists they hoped to persuade to join them. Laura recalls, One of the first people I was determined to track down and woo into working with us was Roger. We had never spoken before and we arranged to meet for a coffee. It was mid-pandemic, so we sat on a bench in Stir Market Square under an umbrella in the pouring rain. I thought I was there to interview Roger. I was, of course, actually there for him to interview me. Two hours and a cheese toasty later, he decided to accept my offer, and we were friends. He swiftly became an essential part of the BV, not just for his unmatchable local history columns, but also as a mentor, confidant, and sounding board. It's difficult to imagine an issue of the BV going out which will not be preempted by a long and winding chat with Roger as he gleefully regales me with a number of potential, and all equally bonkers, local history stories to choose from. He was never just a columnist. I was proud to call him a friend, and I will miss him very much. From its very first edition, Roger's Then and Now, and Looking Back articles, have been go-to sections of the BV. You can read the archive on the BV magazine website. Roger remained a true professional right to the end. Just a couple of weeks before he died, Laura decided not to publish the piece he submitted for his Looking Back column. Two days later, he sent another article, a hilarious tale of a 16th century East Dorset squire, Henry Hastings, described as a champion seducer, whose quarry was as likely to wear skirts as fur or leather. It was much better than the first piece, but it was typical of Roger that he had, albeit perhaps unwittingly, kept the best for last. Roger Guttridge was born at Redhill, Surrey. The family moved back to his mother, Connie's native Dorset, in the early 1950s. He went to Blandford Grammar School before beginning a 50-year career in the media, including newspapers and magazines, book writing and publishing, PR and marketing, radio and television. He was a district reporter, chief reporter and deputy news editor of the Bournemouth Daily Echo, wrote some 20 books, including tales of smuggling and murder, and edited several others. 
Roger was particularly renowned for his books on Dorset and his local history columns in The Echo, Bournemouth and Dorset, the original Blackmore Vale and Stour and Avon magazines, Dorset Life and latterly here in the BV magazine. He was the Bournemouth Daily Echo's swimming correspondent from 1988 to 2018, contributed to Swimming Times, the national swimming magazine, and wrote about swimming for other newspapers, including the Daily and Sunday Express. He covered three Olympic Games, Athens, Beijing and London, two Commonwealth Games, Manchester and Glasgow, and many World and European Championships. He was press officer for the Great British Swim Team in 1999 and 2000. He took part in or advised on many television and radio programmes, including a BBC Radio 4 programme about the real-life smuggling influences behind J. Mead Faulkner's classic novel Moonfleet, set in Dorset. During 2018, he appeared on the BBC One series Murder, Mystery and My Family, in which he revealed newly discovered documents to the grandson of Charlotte Bryant, who was hanged in 1936 for poisoning her husband with arsenic. The BBC Four series Beach Live, Jurassic Coach Revealed, in which he discussed Dorset's smuggling history and the one show on BBC One. He appears on both parts of the two-part DVD Dorset along the River Stour, presented by Bonnie Sartin of the Yetis. Roger continued to work right up until the last week when he was admitted to Poole Hospital. He died at age 73, four years after his leukaemia diagnosis. He battled his illness with courage and determination right up until the very end. Roger and Fanny Charles, who edited the original Blackmore Vale magazine for 23 years, both worked for the Bournemouth Echo, although not at the same time. Their careers crisscrossed for nearly 50 years, and for many years he was the local history columnist for the BVM. Fanny says, Readers love local history. If they are locals of many generations, they are probably related to somebody in one of the stories. And if they're incomers, these snapshots of life in past times help them to feel part of their new community. She recalls that she envied the Echo having Roger and admits that she was excited when she heard that the paper's cost-cutting management had dispensed with his services. I got on the phone to Roger as soon as I heard the news and persuaded him to meet me for lunch at a local pub. I asked him to bring his history column to us and he agreed. He also brought his swimming contacts and expertise. So our little magazine, which couldn't compete with the Echo or the Western Gazette in covering football, cricket or athletics, had an authoritative and always readable stream of swimming news, local, regional, national and international. Roger had a much wider audience with us because we had an enormous circulation and his articles were appreciated by thousands of readers for years. Fanny was delighted to see Roger's articles in the BV, where of course they became go-to sections for so many. Roger was one of a trio who were affectionately known locally as the Three Rogers. The only survivor, photographer Roger Lane, remembers his great friend and colleague. It's with great sadness that I mention the passing of my long-term friend Roger Guttridge, with whom I shared the same birthday, albeit five years apart, me in 1945 and Roger in 1950. My late fellow photographer Roger Holman and I worked with Roger Guttridge on our first book, Landscapes of Dorset, and again on Villages of Dorset. We frequently toured Dorset, signing copies of the books and promoting them with talks. Sadly, I am the only Roger remaining, but in the spirit of my friends, I intend to carry on with camera and words as long as I can. Roger was a tremendously generous and quiet professional with a subtle sense of humour, generous with his advice and personal help to me with my writing. 
He was a constant supporter for fair and reasonable terms for authors in respect of publishing contracts with the Society of Authors. His knowledge of Dorset, and in particular the Blackmore Vale, was unsurpassed, along with his personal history of smuggling and one of Dorset's most famous smugglers, Roger Ridout, from whom he was a direct descendant. Whenever we met, Roger, knowing my lifelong interest in motor racing, always held a detailed conversation about the last Grand Prix or the next. It amazed me how he knew so much about it when his sport was swimming, but that was no doubt due to his inquiring mind as a journalist. Roger had a lasting interest in Newfoundland. Outside his beloved Dorset, but still closely connected to it through its Pool and Dorset links, he researched the fishing trade. Many men went from Dorset to fish the then vast cod stocks on the Grand Banks, and deep connections such as the old folk and sea songs and the language. The dialect spoken in the eastern Canadian province still has traces of the Dorset dialect that Thomas Hardy and William Barnes would have known. Roger's interviews and discoveries developed into a series of well-researched articles and proved fascinating and helpful to Fanny Charles after she found a family connection. My great-great-grandfather went from the Blackmore Vale to fish the Grand Banks and he died out there. The exciting recent discovery of a pair of swan-skin mittens, the last surviving examples of the fabric made uniquely in the Blackmore Vale, was directly due to Roger's involvement with the swan-skin seafarers of Sturmitz de Newton Heritage Project. Andy also benefited from his father's Newfoundland connections. He arranged for me to go over to Memorial University in St John's to do my sixth form work experience at the geology department there. That was an amazing experience for me at the age of 17. What is common to all the tributes and memories from Roger's colleagues, past and present, is their affection, respect and admiration for a true professional, a man who loved Dorset and who was much loved. Well, that tribute to the late Roger Gutteridge brings us to the end of episode one of the September edition of the BV Magazine podcast. Join us again in a couple of weeks' time for episode two. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And until next time, it's also goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.